My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this very, very special episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Today's guest is Ole Damagard. You may have heard of him before. If not, he is one of the foremost experts on false flags and hoaxes. Ole's been given the Prague Peace Prize, and he's been adopted by the Apache Nation, given the name Bright One. He's an author, international speaker, former journalist, musician, composer, artist, inventor, and investigator who's dedicated the last 40 years to researching many of the global conspiracies. Find out more about Ole at lightonconspiracies.com. And due to the nature of today's episode, I had to put some of it behind the paywall. Although I'm not really worried about censorship, I just felt like some of it was intense stuff and the supporters who are helping me put this show out consistently twice a week they deserve to be treated to a little bonus here and there and also i want to give folks an incentive to support the show because seriously i cannot do this without your support so please help us meet our goal of reaching 250 supporters on patreon right now we're at 160 so we still need 90 more people and one of those 90 people is you you listening right now spend your five dollars support this show has brought value to your life whether you enjoy the show once a week multiple times a week whether you tune in every now and then you're gonna get a lot more for your dollar and for your time spent listening if you support the podcast moving forward there will be some changes i'm going to be doing extended outros with the guest and on my own so you're going to get at least an hour of additional episode if you sign up whether it's patreon or substack so please do consider supporting this podcast now go and sign up don't even listen to this episode until you've signed up on Patreon, you get a custom RSS feed. So you don't have to change the way you listen to the podcast. You just take that RSS feed that Patreon gives you and you put it into whatever app you're already using to listen to the podcast. So do that. 
listen to the full conversation with Ola Demigard. And if not, well, continue to be a barnacle. That's fine. I don't mind. I love everybody who tunes into this show. But we do need people to support the show in order for me to continue doing it at the pace that I'm doing. And I want to grow and expand, and I can't do that without your help. So please, if you like the show, if you find value in the show, do that now. Sign up for the Patreon, and you'll get the full episode here with Ole Damagar. And he has put together really just groundbreaking, world-shifting information It's all available on his website, Light on Conspiracies. And we do end on a light note, but I wanted to have Ole on to talk about JFK, given that the 60th anniversary is coming up. And also considering a recent episode about JFK, I just wanted everybody to sort of have a chance to uh, float back down to earth, so to speak. Not that Jay and Ryder... Uh, didn't do great work putting that theory together, but it's just a little out there. And I was surprised to find that some people really weren't happy with their conclusion, and that's fine. We need to be open-minded to all sides with a podcast like this. So in order to balance out what some people felt like was a too far out there theory about JFK, I had Oleon to give us maybe uh, one of the most concise breakdowns of this event that I could provide, I mean, within my means. Obviously, Ole is is probably one of the top-ranked guys that I can get in touch with to talk about this particular subject. So, anyways, without further ado, Codebreaker and Peacemaker, Ole Damagard joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Ole Damagard. get goosebumps when i talk about i there was like this shift of oh my god suddenly it hit him i think it the level of madness how close he for being absolutely not aware was so close to be part of completely destroying the world as we know it so it's at that point it's like he's almost being enlightened or or being going through this transformation, instant transformation. And it's after that when he, he just says, well, I'm gonna destroy the CIA. I'm gonna crush it into a thousand pieces and spread it for the winds. Unheard of, unheard of. He fired Alan Dulles. I mean, unheard of. He was the creator of the CIA that had turned it into from the OSS into the CA with the help of these former super Nazis. He kicked Bissell, he kicked Cavill. Uh, he, uh, holy cows in the CA, out. He was saying, J. Edgar Hoover, I hate you. Y- your time is, you know, limited. Next time you're out. He said, uh, I'm gonna withdraw from the Vietnam War, which was like a massive drug trade uh, business as well as a war. He said, I'm gonna withdraw. I'm gonna bring everyone home. I'm going to take out the Federal Reserve. I'm going to bring the money back to the people. I'm going to take the silver, make it real to the people. The Federal Reserve, fuck off. You've you've been raping us long enough. I'm going to stop the Israeli nuclear weaponry uh, program. I'm going to chase down the mob. Chase down the mob. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And boy, are we in for a treat tonight. With us is a legend in the conspiracy research community. I have been a follower of his work for many years, so it's about time I had the courage to invite him onto the show. And yeah, I, I couldn't think of a better time given that the 60th anniversary of JFK is coming up and this man has spent a lot of time, maybe to to some the foremost expert on that whole event. But without further ado, Ole Damagar, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I hope I got that correctly. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Good, good. And no, you didn't rape my name. That's quite unusual. So thank you for that. And I love the name of your podcast. I absolutely love it. So yeah, great I venture, to be here. I venture to guess you can relate to the title. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> no, your your family's on board. <laughs> it's. I tell you, I think it's for everyone who starts noticing that something is very messed up and something is very upside down in the world. Inverted reality is called. Uh, the people closest to you are a blessing in disguise because they will say, "You're in for boot camp here." Is this your truth? In that case, you will have to practice some muscles. And the ones you will practice with are the ones that are closest to you emotionally and often in the family, spouse, brothers, sisters, parents, kids. It's super painful. I tell you that super painful, super traumatic in many ways. But it is indirectly a blessing because it says, okay, you are here not for just the entertainment you are here to evolve as a spiritual being a spiritual warrior now let's see if you can take it because this is boot camp you don't remember signing up for it but here you go and you will be tested you will be tested and i said i have even printed t-shirts that says uh, stop whining start shining i love this that. is the time the the time is it easy it's so difficult it's so horrible it's so wonderful it's so scary it's so in interesting it's so intriguing it's so horrendous it's so amazing this is the time stop whining get out of victim mode and start shining become the best of you don't wait for anyone else you're the one you've been waiting for so get the thumb out your butt and get moving because this is not a time to just like things on Facebook or social control media. This is the time to stand in whatever your truth is. And hopefully that truth is connected to your heart, meaning that it's imbalanced and it comes pro-humanity. That is not here to absolutely fuck us up, but it's here to liberate us because we are being challenged by incredible assholes and incredible super psychos that are the best teachers ever. Life had been trying for so many years to say, please, in the mother of whoever, wake up, way, hello, hello, it's time, coffee is smelling, other things like shite is smelling, things are going on here, and it's time for you to get out of your own desires and your own, I don't care who are the homeless people, who's my neighbor, who could give a fuck, I'm just here for my own desires and greed. It, that time is past. We are at the 50 shades of gray, no longer there. It's this one or that one, black or white, 
no race but black or white, true or false, love or hate or fear. That's it. So after rambling on like that, Mr. Mark, how words, are you doing? I'm doing well, and those are some words to live by. We're already off to the races here. I, I really appreciate the words of wisdom there in the middle part of what you just said, and I second the, the prescience of your advice at the end there, because, yeah, I think people need to wake up and smell the coffee and whatever else is, is lying there for them to deal with. And, yeah, maybe little by little, with that approach, we can start to take a whack out of the problems we're facing today. But you've been... Very busy, you mentioned before we got started here. You've been very busy researching and trying to get to the bottom of some, frankly, disturbing events that have taken place across the world. The first part of what you said was the Maui fires, and I've had a few episodes about that particular topic, but you also mentioned something on the global scale that was distressing you. you want to get into that right away and, and maybe talk about what's been on your mind? It's these areas are so big. I I sort of be, started becoming aware of what was slightly. I started be, smelling that something very weird was going on like forty three years ago. Can you believe it or not? Get a life, and uh, I started just feeling something really bizarre is going on. It was the JFK assassination that woke me up. Uh, it took me about like eighteen seconds the first time I saw the Sapruda movie to see that boom. The final headshot, what on earth is going on there? Because just simple physics says you smack someone in the face, the, if somebody hits me in the face, my head will move away from the force, be thrown away in the same direction as from where the attack came. And it's very obvious that the final headshot, there was more than one, but they came in at the same very uh, almost in the same second, but the main one threw his head back and to the left. Meaning, I mean, from around logic, one plus one equals two, the shooter must have standing in front and to the right. And the official story then suddenly said, no, he was up behind, six floors up behind a tree with a horribly awful rifle with a scope that wasn't fitted, shooting in record time that no one has ever been able to repeat. Something is deadly wrong. It took me like 18 seconds to figure out what and then it's still 43 years later, I'm like still in the layers of this extreme complicated, multi-layered conspiracy. Right. And conspiracy, not theory. I'm not interested in theories. I mean, who cares? I have a theory about the moon being made of green cheese. Who cares? Who cares? Maybe it's yellow cheese. I don't know until I'm up there tasting it. Until then, it's a theory. I'm into facts. Facts. It's the truth shall set you free. And I tell you, one really almost bizarre detail is that now the shot that was fired behind the picket fence, it was just one of multiple shooters. The whole place was surrounded. I, I spent many, many years get digging very deep into this whole thing. I'm very, a very close friend of, of people right in the center of this uh, of this uh, horrible assassination on both sides, both uh, kids of agents involved, but also assassins, but also people involved on the other side, like Judith Baker, the mistress of uh, 
of Oswald, uh, a close friend, but also I'm now in direct touch with the shooter from behind the picket fence. His name is James Files. James Files. He's 81 years old, and he was the one that fired the final headshot from behind the picket fence. And now, many many years later, he is trying to redeem himself by telling the truth. And I tell you, that is not just speculation. He was the one that did it, and to know gain for himself an absolute horror for his own life he has uh, put that out there from the mid 90s all the way up to now and now from being part of uh, doing an incredibly cowardly horrible i mean what was done that day the, the his shot for instance it was only 88 feet you know it's like a turkey dog unarmed target and no protection whatsoever and to blow his head off that is just horrendous and now him standing up for the truth is very heroic it's so bizarre same individual but on the he sort of yeah so i've been doing everything after i really started understanding that he was telling the truth in the mid 90s i've been doing everything i can to stand by his side and support him in getting it out there and so yeah, very, very odd. And then you have to ask yourself the good side that was there to reveal the the truth with the Warren Commission and onwards to this very day are absolutely trying to cover it up. Why would they do such a thing if they were not involved themselves? And the reason I am have been so focused, I put, I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours into the JFK assassination and then MLK and Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, you name it, because we're looking many times at the same team that took them out, same team. And the ones, the re ones I, I want to repeat, the reason why this assassination is very important. It's not like, was there a president one time called Kennedy and he was killed because of whatever? No, it's because the force that took over that day this deadly, deadly force, this, this black cobra that took over in the background has stayed in power. It was a global takeover. It was a global coup d'etat. The reason they did it right out in the open, they could have just popped a pill in his coffee. That would have been so much easier. But it was to send a message globally saying, we just took out number one in open daylight, whatever, meaning we can take out anyone, any one of you out there in the corridors of so-called power. You get go against us, we'll destroy you. If you don't stay in line, it's game over. We just showed you we can get away with murder, literally, mass murder in the form of all of these wars. So shut up, stay in line, or you will be fucked up. So... Yeah. So I don't know if I answered your question, but interesting <laughs> times, very interesting to be in direct touch with this man. Yeah. Who I think now is understanding. I mean, when he did it, he said he, he was not a fan of Kennedy. He really disliked him because of what he had done or what he was uh, accused of having back, giving no air support and stop and also messing up the whole Bay of Pigs invasion where Jimmy Files was, as a very young man, he was part of training some of the people. He knew them personally and they got absolutely massacred and tortured when they tried to invade Cuba. So he hated him, but it wasn't from personal gains. He was just asked 
because one of the other shooters backed out on the a few hours before the assassination. And then Chucky Nicoletti, who was the shooter in the Daltex building, said, Jimmy, would would you mind uh, stepping in as a as a just as an extra to you know, like make absolute sure that he's dead type of shooter. Right. And Files said, I'll be honored to. And he said for him, it was just like taking out the trash. He couldn't care less. He was a very hard man. And he had already been in Laos. He was recruited when he was 19, uh, I think 17. And then in Laos until he was 19, he had taken out multiple people, including people on his own side, soldiers. With, and his speciality was headshots. And so, yeah, and that's why also he was using a very, very special ammo this day. He was using a Remington Fireball X100. It's a very, like, small handheld rifle almost that was developed by the CIA in the early 60s. And the, the ammo he was using was a 221, but specially uh, modified by a Chicago mob gun technician called Wolfman who because the problem with this one was that there's sometimes the 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 bullet ricocheted off the skull of a victim Uh, it wasn't uh, powerful enough or there was a problem with it so he went to wolfman and then wolfman drilled the top of these uh, bullets and filled them with mercury and then wax on top so that when the impact happened they just it was more than a dum-dum you know it just completely exploded on impact and that is exactly what we see so well there you go well yeah i appreciate you getting into some of the gruesome details it's funny we recently had some guests on the show who proposed a theory that i really had never heard before and you know i I try to stay open-minded everything on this show but I do appreciate having you on the show to maybe reel me back in because it was a little out there, the theory that was proposed. And I did get some audience members commenting, saying, you should have pushed Bring back. You should have pushed back. But when it comes to JFK, what are your thoughts on the Kennedy family in general? Because there seems to be two camps. There's a camp of people who are part of this sort of you know, Kennedys can do no wrong. They're a quintessential American family. And then there are the people who say, oh, well, the Kennedys, they were always connected to the mob and they were making money during the prohibition and, and this and that. What did you learn about the Kennedy family and how JFK, you know, was sort of, I don't know, maybe even predestined for this in a way? Do you resemble your dad? Are you responsible for your dad's actions, your brothers, sisters? granddad, kids, no, you're responsible for you. And very often children become either a copy of their parents or the exact opposite. You know, you stand up, you rebel against them. So it's a, it's a very not uh, intelligent question to say the Kennedys. But yet again, you see how they came to power by through uh, Joseph, the, the father. I mean, scrupulous businessman and involved in illegal activities. And one of the ways that uh, he his dream was to get his son into the White House. And his first son was officially killed in, in, during the Second World War on a mission there. So option number two was John F. Kennedy, his uh, middle son. And so he came in as a young, rich, spoiled brat uh, playboy, 
type of individual. He got into office through illegal means. Like it was a very, very close race with Nixon. It was the closest ever in history, only 100,000 votes. And these votes came from the Chicago mob because dear old, old senior Kennedy went to the Chicago mob saying, listen, we need to gather some votes here. So they went out and did a whole scout boy, boy scout uh, type of job, going to cemeteries, uh, getting the names of tombstones and adding more fake vo- votes to the whole election, meaning that Kennedy won. He got in. The Chicago mob felt great. Uh, thanks to us, we got uh, your son in there, meaning the door into the White House is open for the mob. Anyway, so this young brat came in. God knows his intention. I mean, when you look at especially Robert Kennedy, it was very brave uh, during the McCarthy and so on. He, he was a very brave individual. So anyway, we got John in there, uh, who was not this aggressive like like Robert. I mean, Robert was like a bull terrier, uh, you know, you couldn't hardly control. But John was a different story. And he got also, I think, very, uh, how shall I say, lured into the world of glamour, into the world of Hollywood and movie stars. And in in those days, in the early 60s, this was a whole new era. He was the youngest president ever. And with his beautiful wife, Jackie Onassis, Jackie, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy, later Onassis, they turned uh, the White House into this glamour house instead of boring politician type of uh, meaningless thing. So the whole of the U.S. sort of really got on their feet, like, oh, my God, change can happen. This can really be an incredible difference. So he got involved with uh, Frank Sinatra and through the mobster Johnny Rosselli, who was the middleman between the film, the movie stars and the mob and the White House, the Kennedys. This whole thing became like one. This is the thing. They they were mingling with each other. They were at the same parties. They were sharing lovers, you know, like very like, like that. And so in the, the first years, I think that is what we see. Then we had uh, all the things up until the Cuban Missile Crisis, where suddenly, suddenly this glamour boy, was put in a position where like, oh my God, we are facing a third world war. You know, it was so close. There were these ships coming from, from Russia being sent by Khrushchev uh, with missiles on them. At least that is what we're being told. And so they were on heading there on their way to Cuba. Cuba is just on the other side of a tiny little water thing, you know, very close. And the U.S., who loves to put army bases everywhere in the world, if you suddenly have somebody else do that, even though it's one compared to your hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, oh, my God, we have a problem. So the U.S. said, if you pass this longitude, we will push the button. And by mistake, these ships did pass these ones. So people who were in the same room as Kennedy the tension was incredible because the whole military military industrial complex who makes an absolute killing in wars financially in blood in lives and you name it horror rebuilding as well 
they were they were shouting, you know, more like press the button, press the button, get the war going. And he was sitting there almost with tears coming down his his cheeks, just saying, I refuse to become to be the one who will destroy the world. And after that, you suddenly see this shift. I think it was like, I get goosebumps when I talk about it. There was like this shift of, oh my God, suddenly it hit him, I think. The level of madness, how close he, for being absolutely not aware, was so close to be part of completely destroying the world as we know it. So it's at that point, it's like he's almost being enlightened or, or being going through this transformation, instant transformation. And it's after that what he, he just says, well, I'm going to destroy the CIA into it. I'm going to crush it into a thousand pieces and spread it for the winds. Unheard of, unheard of. He fired Alan Dulles. I mean, unheard of. He was the creator of the CIA that had turned it into, from the OSS into the CIA with the help of these former super Nazis. He kicked Bissell, he kicked Cavill. Uh, he, uh, holy cows in the CIA, out. He was saying, J. Edgar Hoover, I hate you. Y- your time is, you know, limited. Next time you're out. He said, uh, I'm going to withdraw from the Vietnam War, which was like a massive drug trade uh, business, as well as a war. He said, I'm going to withdraw. It wasn't the the American uh, or the U.S. hadn't really taken over that war. It's a, it was a French drug drug war. <laughs> Sorry, that the U.S. said, we're going to take over this whole trade thing. And so at that point, the U.S. only had what was called military advisors there, but the war sort of on the American part hadn't really started. He said, I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to bring everyone home. I'm going to take out the Federal Reserve. I'm going to bring the money back to the people. I'm going to take the silver, make it real to the people, the Federal Reserve. Fuck off. You've, you've been raping us long enough. I'm going to stop the Israeli nuclear weaponry uh, program. I'm going to chase down the mob, chase down the mob. I mean, they helped him to be so betrayed them. He so betrayed them. He double crossed them. So not only did he say, well, sorry, the door is closed to the White House. He put his young bull terrier, you know, brother, chasing them like a witch hunt. There were like 700% more uh, guilty victims against the mobs than ever before. J. Edgar Hoover, who the mob had by the balls because he was a transgender and a homosexual with his with his second in charge, Clyde Tolson, they had him, they blackmailed him. So up until that whole thing started, FBI didn't even recognize the mob as as being real. They said, no, no, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. The mob was so powerful. But Robert Kennedy said, we're going to chase them down. This is a lynching party. You are going down. So when he started doing all of these things, and there are even more things uh, also with him, he was at the time of the assassination. Lyndon Johnson was facing a trial for eight murders and a whole lot of other crap. I mean, lying Lyndon absolute 
super corrupt individual who was who also had a, his private uh, henchman Malk Wallace to take out people that were problems, including his own sister, who was an alcoholic and sort of really liked to, to sleep around, big mouth. He had her murdered as well. So charming individual. So he was about to go down. Jay Gahuber was about to go down. The mob was about to go down. The whole military industrial complex was going down. CIA was going down. The whole, the drug traders was going down. I mean, unheard of. And JFK also started dealing directly with the Russians saying, listen, let's stop this madness. Let's just get out of this arms race. It's time to hog perestroika and, you know, like, let's have some vodka and, and enjoy life instead of what the hell is going on. Traitor, traitor, traitor. And that was what got him killed because so many forces just. So they had this, they had this killing machine that was aimed at Fidel Castro. When Fidel took over Castro, it's, it now turned out that he was a CIA asset as well, not in the beginning. I don't know when he became it, but it seems like that is, that is what actually happened, but it doesn't matter. In, in 59 and 60, the Batista, who was the leader of Cuba, was allowing the mob to have uh, Cuba used as a landing, middle, sort of brum, brum, middle landing type of thing for the drug import. So there was massive drug smuggling going on via Cuba, but also the, the it was a gambling uh, paradise, you know, with the casinos everywhere. And when, when Fidel Castro came and took over, he just kicked all of this out. He said, you foreign interest, fuck off, fuck us, you know, out of the island, get away. And so he was upsetting a lot, a lot of people. So the CIA officially started this campaign to take him out. I mean, it said that there was about 100 attempts to his uh, life. I don't. It's very odd that they failed so many times. But one of these attempts was a a bioweapon. Are, are you interested in JFK? Because this Absolutely. will take a bit of a time. No, you have me at the edge of my seat. I'm, I'm listening. Okay, so, I have a few questions, so Mark, but please go Mark, on. I'll, I'll be happy to come on your show more than once so we can take one, one at a time because these are yeah. so big. Thank you. Okay, so, so in, the, in the early 60s, I have to rewind the tape a little bit. Actually, it was the end of the 50s. We had Dwight Eisenhower as president. Please understand, presidents are on a lower level of the real power. You know, these are front figures, nice looking very often, but it's just like a cover. The real thing is going on behind them, but they're being, they're the ones playing the game, but they're being played. Okay, so Dwight Eisenhower was given the task to create a mobile murder incorporated because the forces, the New World Order forces that we're still struggling with here, they were in the process of taking uh, over country by country by country. And some they did it in different ways with CIA-backed military crews. They had financial hitmen that could do it like that, scare the living bejesus out of the whoever was in power, you know, like in one in one pocket, they they approached them like businessmen and with very nice proposals, like in one pocket, I've got like $4 trillion here for you and your friends and all of that. And in the other pocket, I've got a, 
I got a handful of bullets with your name, your wife, your dog, your sister, your brother, your your kids. You know, what do you choose? Financial hitman, economic hitman, and very often the people chose the trillions, especially when they started seeing other leaders that did not choose that, who ended up very, very dead. So military coups, assassin, real assassinations, economic hitmen, all kinds of revolutions, organized revolutions like that, same power, same. But with many of these assassinations, they had to go in recruit somebody, uh, set the whole thing up, you know, with a patsy and all of that, every time starting all over again. And they never knew, are we going to find people skilled enough or dedicated enough or fanatic enough that we can use them, you know, for this whole thing. So somebody came up and said, uh, why don't we just create a, a mobile unit? You know, there's such a thing as airplanes, you know, we train them. We make them absolute best at anything that is connected to death, all kinds of stuff, poison, explosives, guns, bazookas, you name it. We'll just give them the very best training. And then we have this mobile mobile unit that can be sent anywhere, making things easy. And if we can control them, if they start, uh, you know, instead of having this problem all the time, we just use the same. So they started doing that and they created what was called Operation 40 or Group 40. And this uh, was this the Dweisenhauer gave that task to his vice president, Richard Nixon. So Richard Nixon started contacting some old CIA wolves. It was E. Howard Hunt, later very famous for the Watergate, Watergate burglary, completely connected to the JFK assassination, covering to try and cover that up and get rid of Nixon. E. Howard Hunt was one of the architects of the JFK assassination later. We had the Ted, the blonde ghost Shackley, super, super important person later in life after the JFK assassination and part of many, many, many operations around the world, including being part of the mass extinction program, mass slaughter, mass murder program called Operation Phoenix in the Vietnam War, but also down in South America, Latin America, creating a lot of these extermination plans for many countries like El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Chile, uh, Bolivia, many of these ones, charming individual, horrible, horrible, horrible. So he was uh, the chief of the Western Hemisphere of uh, operations later. And then you had David Atlee Phillips, who was also, the, he was his predestator, predestator, whatever you call it, for the operations of the Western Hemisphere of the CIA. And he was also the handler of Lee Harvey Oswald, as well as the handler of James Files, who was the shooter behind the picket fence, who I'm now in direct contact with, and several other. One of them, Gary Marlowe, who was uh, one of the peace, pe people that ca killed J.D. Tippett the day. Um, Sorry if I'm all over the no, place. No, you're Anyone not. I, I do. I do want to follow up on one of the things you just mentioned, and JD Tibbet did come up in our recent conversation about JFK. So I am familiar with him, and and some people say he looked very similar to JFK. Yeah. I wonder what your thoughts are there. Maybe like as a, a stand-in for JFK's body, and and maybe you know who would have shot him because it seems like yeah. that was very like within the same hour two hours of yep. the jfk yep. assassination 
I tell you, I've been a speaker three times in Dallas at the JFK conference there. I have really devoted my life to try and find the truth. I'm still confused. So many of us top researchers say, I know the truth and all the rest of you are wrong. Nobody agrees with me, but I think I know the truth. Okay, so it's on that level. I, I can only say this is what I've been able to find and I have put in the work. I have really. So J.D. Tippett is a very interesting and mysterious part of this whole assassination. J.D. Tippett was a so-called just a police officer in Dallas. No. But this very morning, it said that after uh, Oswald is said to have killed Kennedy, he managed to get out of the Texas school book depository, got somehow back home to his, his home on North Beckley. And then from there, he got he was on his way to the Texas school book. No, sorry, the Texas theater, the cinema where if you ask me he was he was heading to meet up with his handler they had decided if anything goes wrong get your butt over there and that was the one he was supposed to meet there which was david atley phillips but instead he was david atley phillips had prepared him for months as a patsy and he was being absolutely set up to be taken there that's why you had like a million police officers waiting for him everything case closed boom at the texas Theater. I mean, they say it was because he didn't pay the entrance ticket. Really? I mean, <laughs> bring it on. 28 police officers there that just goes in fully armed and picks him up for not paying for the ticket. Well, I don't know about you. I do not trust that version. But anyway, so how did J.D. Tippett get killed? Because J.D. Tippett got uh, killed in the crossing of Patton Street and North. Sorry. Yeah. 10th Street, Patton and 10th, I think. So it said that J.D. Tippett this morning, when you when you really start checking out the testimonials of how he was behaving, for one thing is that he had a background that was connected to Oswald. He was also, as far as I remember, in this very top secret uh, air base in, in Japan when Oswald was there as well. Many of the people involved there are part of the same network, you know. This morning, he was acting very weird. People saw him driving around, stopping cars, checking in the back of the seat, you know, opening up just like he was looking for someone who was trying to escape the area, Lee Harvey Oswald. And he was very nervous. He ran in and he was making phone calls. He was all sweaty like that. So he was one of the people trying to track down Oswald because Oswald was not supposed to get out of there alive. These patsies are normally suicided on location or killed on location. So it's case closed. Thank you. The motive is ready. The, the assassin is dead. What a bummer. Now that we can't even go to court because he's dead. Case closed. Thank you. Please go back to sleep. Now let's move on. That's the idea. But he got out. He got out also because he was aware of that he was the patsy. I'm, I'm going to come back to that because actually Lee Harvey Oswald in my world was a hero who sacrificed his life trying to save JFK. It's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. But anyway, J.D. Tippett came on Patton 10th Street and according to witnesses, 
he's there was a guy walking down the pavement and he stops his police car gets out they start talking and suddenly uh, this other this guy he stopped pulls up a gun according to one witness there are two different uh, shooters that boom 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 they fire they kill uh, jd Tippett on location with two different types of of bullets caliber bullets the shells uh, left on set also different caliber different types and then Oswald takes off. But the witness says that there was one a bit uh, tall and the other one uh, small. And, and so, so so over the years, what I found out is that the one that the people that J.D. Tippett stopped were also looking for Oswald, it seems like. His name, the guy that shot J.D. Tippett, his name was Gary Marlowe. He was a uh, he was a very close friend of Jimmy Files, the shooter behind the picket fence. They both had David Atley Phillips as a handler, but Jimmy Files was not aware of that Gary, Gary Marlow was that that day. And the the other shooter, his name is uh, Clyde Forshaw, if I'm correct. Clyde Forshaw was also one of the shooters, and has later I'm not sure if he's still alive. He lives in Toronto. He has ad- taken out at least one thousand people. 1,000 people, together with his cousin, Walter Tobinski, who was another of the shooters that n- most people are not aware of. He, Walter Tobinski is uh, the guy that was taking photos of at the Mexican embassy in, uh, no, sorry, the Russian embassy in Mexico City, where photos are taken of Oswald when he leaves. You can see in the JFK movie, there's, it's the real photos of this guy who comes out and they say, that's Oswald. It's, and everybody in the movie as well say, but that's not Oswald. No, it's Walter Tabinsky. I can get back to these people afterwards. So anyway, uh, Jimmy Files, the shooter behind the picket fence, after uh, finishing his part of the job, he he took uh, he left very quickly and drove out of Dallas uh, and went to Mesquite where he, he entered into a motel called the Lamnite Motel, where the only one that who knew he was there was David Atty Phillips, his handler. That was nobody else. And when when he was in there, he had he had just shaved and no showered, and he also uh, shaved and then he put wax on his everything everywhere, and very painful, but pulled it off to to get rid of all kind of uh, powder residue uh, from his hands from everything. Should he be taking you know so he had just gotten out of his shower and uh, somebody knocks on the door and he's like who the hell knows that i'm here so he opens with a gun in his hand and it's gary marlow his his friend from back home in chicago and he's like what the hell are you doing here and gary said don't worry about that i just had to smoke a cup please oh and then he wants to hand the gun the handgun to to jimmy and jimmy's like holy shit take that thing away from me i don't want to do it do you know like he need he he wanted to be as far as away from this whole thing in dallas as possible so he refused he just closed the door gary marlow took uh, took off and uh, yeah anyway so you can see on my website light on conspiracies i've got photos and all of these things of, of these people all the shooters i, I identify more or less everyone in that place that day. But anyway, so J.D. Tippett ended up with four shots, if I remember right, one to the head. And he looked somewhat like JFK. The thing is that 
after the assassination, the body of JFK, which was hit, hit multiple times and also had a massive, massive, massive uh, hole in the head from multiple, it seems like there were three shots fired at the exact same time or less because the, the motorcade had come to a full stop. And please understand, we're talking about shooters that are shooting from the distance of like 10 feet, 12 feet, to like the, from behind the picket fence, 88 feet. But there were people in the storm drain. There were people also. So it seems like just before the shot hits from the side, where where James Files was zooming in, he, he had a scope on this Remington fireball, and he was aiming for the right eye. I mean, it was so close. And he said just before he, he, he pulled the trigger, Kennedy's head was thrown forward just a fraction of a second before, boom. So it seems like, according to Jimmy Files, it was Chucky Nicoletti, the, one of the shooters, uh, he was positioned in the Daltex building that hit Kennedy from behind. And then Jimmy hit uh, from, so the shot, his shot entered here. But at the very same time, when you see computer uh, graphics and uh, examinations of this, the wound and the skull, it seems also like there was a shot coming from underneath and to the right, meaning this storm drench underneath that where there was one shooter possibly frank sturgis frank fiorini one of the one other operative from operation 40 somebody was down there and so it seems like when the motorcade for some bizarre reason came to almost a full stop that's when so the shots were like almost like that three in one like that and that's where we see the whole shebang just uh, his whole head just uh, explodes so where was i going with this anyway so jd tippet so we have a body with a massive big hole where a, where it's coming in from the wrong direction the head you know everything is wrong because we're supposed to blame somebody from behind Not, nothing would prove that so in the autopsy one of many they tried to to fix that you know so first of all they stole the body from the parkland hospital they the secret service and the whoever they were men in black came in on gunpoint with machine guns saying we're taking over this body according to u.s uh, law a federal law if a homicide happened in texas at that time it would be a local crime and should be dealt with it like that with a local coroner, with a local uh, autopsy, with everything like that. Here they came, they just took over the body and and stole it, took it uh, in an ambulance to Air Force One. But in, in, in Air Force One, while, I mean, he was put in a casket, a, a, a bronze casket, beautiful casket, and transported uh, with a local ambulance company to Air Force One. In Air Force One, at the same time as, as Lyndon Bain Johnson is being sworn in, they seem to have swapped the, the body, gotten him out of that one and put JFK's uh, body into a body bag, a gray body bag, and sort of like a really cheap type of wooden casket, more or less for dead soldiers type of thing, that that one. So that that's also why Jackie Kennedy was, she was, they insisted on her 
to be there when Johnson was sworn in. She's standing right next to him. The reason for that was that she was sitting by the casket all the time. They needed her away so that they could swap the, the body. Possibly, possibly they put J.D. Tippett in there with a headshot, similar features. There is this possibility. I do not say that it's uh, impossible, meaning also wherever that casket went, if that was the one that was buried, then it's uh, J.D. Tippett in Arlington Cemetery today, because according to Ted Shackley, overheard by Jimmy Files, uh, and also Chip Tatum, another CIA whistleblower, he also heard it, that the body of JFK was dumped out at sea. They got rid of evidence. They dumped, they flew him over sea, over the, somewhere over the sea, open sea, and just dumped his body to get rid of it. Also because this, his whole skull would be filled with fragments of uh, mercury from the headshot, boom. And that never goes away, even after 100, 200, 300 years, Mercury will still be there, meaning that that would completely disprove uh, the official story. So the first they got rid of the brain because of, they said that in the FBI's headquarters where they have all the evidence, I'm sorry, the brain just takes up too much space. So let's dump it. That's uh, like you do. Fish food, whatever. Here you go. Sorry, it's gone. And then his body as well. So I... I tell you this, you're welcome to chop off my right arm. That's actually my left. If there is a body in the Arlington Cemetery, if that's JFK, chop away. <clears throat> it's either empty or it is J.D. Tippett's body there. So so this whole thing with J.D. Tippett, not impossible. Not yeah. impossible that that is true. Because it's very odd what happened to him. It's very, very odd. And that would make sense that it would also make sense with a headshot, you know, but the, his real body, all of the, in the autopsy, there were multiple autopsies done. You, you, I've been speaking directly to one of the guards that was there at the, at the uh, air force base when, when he came there, the hospital there, and they, they were chasing around the ambulance. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. But what they the people that were in the operation did not want anyone to be able to see what was actually going on before. So they had already, when the body came to to Washington, to Bethesda, they had already started manipulating the the body, you know, so that they had tried to cover and things like that. And also it arrived in a completely different casket than it left. This is where you see, if you listen to when uh, when Johnson has arrived, to, I think, to Washington, D.C., or wherever they, they landed, he's he's like giving a press conference, and he's saying, oh, it's so sad. It's so, Listen, there's a helicopter in the background. You can hear, boop, 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 boop. that's where they pop the, the body. They change, got, get the body out of the Air Force One into the chopper. Then the chopper goes ahead. They then get the, the casket off where everybody's there, you know, Jacqueline and... Robert Kennedy are helping, you know, they bring up the cop. It's empty. And then they go with the ambulance, all of that. The autopsy has already started at the Bethesda hospital, where that hospital, it's not just one. There's many people that have died very mysteriously. 
connected to JFK, but also other cases where they had this tendency of just, uh, whoa, sorry, he was uh, doing fine. And then he just committed suicide, jumping from the 19th floor, as you do, you know, crushing the window, as you do, instead of just opening it, if you were doing it voluntarily. I don't think, maybe I'm naive, but, you know, when I hear about these type of suicides, even if you're suicidal, I don't think you will just crushed, you know, like head first through a window. I think you, why not, if you leave, do it at least sort of like, yeah, I'm opening the window. I'm considering goodbye, cruel world. Thank you so much. And then you jump. But this whole thing about, well, maybe you do if you're Clark Kent and you think you're Superman, but. No, I, I certainly follow your line of logic there. There is a mysterious pamphlet that came out called Silent Weapons for Silent Wars, something like that, Secret Weapons for Silent Wars. I think they found it shoved into like an IBM copier as some, you know, cleanup crew was digging through an old, I don't know, government base or something where the CIA or someone connected must have operated. And they had all sorts of tactics like, you know, lifting up someone by their ankles right when they're standing near a ledge or a bridge and then screaming, oh no, don't, don't. I tried to stop him right and yeah all these very sinister ways of making you know people disappear and and leaving no trace behind but when it comes to jfk as you pointed out i mean i've written down a a couple names here already there's so many people involved with this but someone that i particularly i learned about this through someone you mentioned judith Ferry baker and her book david ferry which goes into this whole sort of a subplot with the JFK assassination. Can we get into, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald? Because I imagine you must agree with a lot of what's in that book, given what she said about Lee Harvey Oswald at least seeming like a patriot, right? Or seeming like someone who was, in his own mind, doing something for the greater good, or at least trying to, aspiring to, right? I, I read in her book that he was a patriotic young guy who wanted to become a a Russian spy because he was so swept up in the McCarthy era, you know, communism versus capitalism, right? So, and then he finds himself in this kind of nexus. Jack Ruby, aka Jack Rubenstein, who also has some connections to Russia, ends up, you know, shooting him point blank in that, you know, seems like so set up there, even that they even filmed it. But yeah, well, maybe we can get spend some time talking about Lee Harvey Oswald and, and, you know, why you think that? Because I agree. I, I found her book really, 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 I mean, astounding, but also credible. I don't think some parts of what she's saying is true. I completely trust her. She's a dear friend. I love Judy. And I had the immense pleasure of spending a lot of time with her in Sweden. Also, she was she used to live in Sweden. And she turned uh, half her house into like a museum of Lee Oswald, her, the love of her life. So I think I'm really grateful that you, you take this approach because it's only when you bring in her story as well, that things starts moving into a make a logical thing. Because one of the reasons we're still confused around the JFK assassination is because it's so multi-layered. There's so many things going on at the same time. I just want to correct you. He didn't want to become a Russian spy. He wanted to become a spy in Russia. You know, so right, right, right. Yeah, major difference. So <laughs> yes, just a little you. one. So anyway, 
I will take you on another joyride or whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's a, a much better book uh, than da- the one about David Ferry. It's called Me and Lee, where Judith goes through this. And the thing with 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 uh, Judith is that she is extremely intelligent. I mean, she had one of the highest IQs, I think, in the US as a 19-year-old. She is. And at the same time, just as with other geniuses and scientists, they're all over the place in many ways. You know, it's, it's hard to follow sometimes because their minds are so active and so on. At the same time, she has a photographic memory. If I say, well, July 14, 1963, she will know what she was wearing, the weather. If somebody called, she can just go through the whole phone call. She can, all of these, it's unbelievable. And I've I've checked her out, you know, and like I say, I spent a lot of time listening to her. I had never, ever found, found anything being not correct. So anyone who says that, oh, 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 don't listen to it. So many people in this JFK sort of community are not listening to Judith, are not listening to James Files. What the hell? Are you researchers or are you not? Are you there to prove a point or are you there to try and find the truth? I don't know about you. I listen to everyone, you know, and then because as a almost like an Apache tracker, it's not only that you find a track, you know, let's say something happened here. Boom, boom. Let's say we have a dead body to see some somebody has to have entered into the space and done that. Oh, yeah. So the matter is find the tracks of who did it. So I start going, because every angle where you see nobody entered here, that is also evidence. Nobody entered here. Nobody entered here. Nobody entered here. Here, we have a set of tracks going in. That's a proof. We got tracks going in. These could be tracks made by shoes that have their soles turned the, the wrong way around. They have their CIA shoes that can do that so that somebody walking in is actually walking out. But uh, welcome to the world of deception in a very easy way. But also there could be multiple uh, people have who had entered into it, or it could be been a fox or a bear. What You need to do a 360 in all of these situations. Check, 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 check. So with Judith and with James Files, I have not found them say one untrue word. As far as I can see, both of them extremely exact, extremely trustworthy. So please, the rest of this JFK community, wake up, to, as they so beautifully say nowadays, what is going on and start looking into this because suddenly you will find, oh my God. So let's come to Judith Barry Baker. Judith was this 19-year-old girl living on the East Coast and her grandmother died of cancer. She loved her, but she died of cancer. And Judith swore that she was going to find a cure for cancer. This was in the late 50s. And so she started doing a lot of experiments in her basement, in her garage or whatever. And she started finding the way she was she was thinking was that if she could find out what made cancer grow, what was feeding cancer, then by stop feeding the cancer that could maybe cure 
cancer. I mean, there's a very good logic to that. You take away the food for something, a living entity, if that is alive, boom, it dies, and that's the cure. So she became the one in the U.S. with the fastest growing method of to get cancer growing faster than anyone else. And this was published in local papers, student magazines, stuff like that. And I believe that the CIA had a sniffer out. They love universities. They love these to check out future assets, you know, future people that could either be of, of gain for them, but also sometimes they recruit really intelligent people and put them in absolute no-brainer uh, projects to keep them busy so that they are not a problem. You know, so they, yeah, there, there are different ways. So anyway, so so Judith Mary Baker somehow got to the Tulane University in New Orleans, where she was, her dream was to start to work with this very famous doctor called Altan Oshner. And Altan Oshner was not just anyone. He was a very, very famous uh, doctor at the time. He was the private doctor of many dictators in the, in the, Latin American countries and stuff like highly respected and also the key person that face outwards when it came to the polio vaccine, the polio vaccine campaign. And so before Judith uh, came along, there was this whole campaign being rolled out in the very early 60s with put some sugar in the to do with some sugar in the bottom and the medicine goes down or something like that, you know, with what's her name? Yeah, Judy Andrews, I think. Judy Garland? No, Judy Andrews. Oh, anyway, yeah. So anyway, they were the whole propaganda machine that we've seen many times now with COVID and these other swine flu operations, the whole propaganda machine was rolled out in the early 60s. And at that time, people were super naive in many, many ways. They were also... You know, it, it was at a time where the haircut of the Beatles shocked the world. I mean, imagine what your hair would do. It's like, how, on what level of naivety are you when that is shocking? So you believe the government because the government is your friend. And so here they, they were, they had created this polio vaccine. Why they created it? I am, I'm, I really have my, my big doubts, you know, that that was a very dark agenda behind that, but let's say that they meant well. But then just a few weeks before it was to be released, to be injected into hundreds of millions of Americans and Europeans, this one included, and some to Russia, one of the people in the team found that they were cancer-causing live things in the vaccine meaning holy moses this could be like if we spread this out what the hell so she went to altan oshna said my god i just found this and he said if you say anything about that i will destroy you you can forget your career you can forget i will destroy you anyway the rumor came out so media was called to, to damage control type of thing. So there was this public uh, press conference where Altan Oshner said, you know, this is so safe, don't you worry, just like uh, Obama drinking water and these things in front of cameras or people being injected with uh, water as well, saying, oh, this vaccine is so wonderful. Sorry, it was in the wrong shoulder, but Anthony Fauci, who cares? So 
So he said to this press conference, this is so safe, I will now inject my two grandchildren with it so you can see for yourself. So he gave the vaccine to his two grandchildren. One of them died within 24 hours and the other one got very serious polio for the rest of her life. So did that stop them? No. Hell no. So we all got injected with this liquid or this floating around time bomb. Charming, charming, not. And and this went on for years and years after they publicly also found out how dangerous it was. They still kept pumping people up. So you had to question what the hell is going on. But anyway, what they found was that in this vaccine, there was a so-called virus, whatever viruses are. I'm very confused at this point, but it, it was labeled SV40. And SV40 was a wet dream for the CIA because this was a galloping, cancer-causing, furious, furious so-called virus. Let's just, it's called virus, so I say that, but I'm still very confused around that. So SV40, virus. What it did was that it it created cancer in an incredible way, so fast. And the brilliant thing for the CIA was that the thing that made it grow, galloping like an incredible drag racing speed, was radiation. And in those days, radiation was the cure for cancer. So they thought, oh, this is just absolutely brilliant. You know, the way they, these very enlightened minds works, not... So they thought Fidel Castro was the problem at the time. So the idea was, if we can somehow get that SV40 into his body temple, somehow get him sick, then his doctors would say, oh my God, you got cancer. We need radiation to cure you. And then his own doctors would kill him. So, you know. Right. <laughs> well, and, and, and it's so, so sinister. I've heard similar uh, theories, I hate to say that, about Bob Marley and how yeah, he, he put on a pair of shoes. I, I hate to go down a tangent, no, but no, no, no it's just no, an example of, of how yeah, this thing no, has been equipped in multiple ways. I'll tell you the only way, the only reason, yeah, it was it was Carl Colby, the daughter, the son of Bill Colby, the head of the CIA, who gave Bob Marley a pair of, of, of cowboy boots. And in them, there was a copper wire that punctured his big toe, where he then developed cancer. Can you believe it? And that the only reason I tell you that he re, that he didn't die faster was because he was smoking so much dope. That is the thing. That is the thing that came in kept him alive until they sent him this German doctor, super Nazi, that tortured him to death, according to his own family. Horrible, horrible, horrible. But he was becoming a massive threat globally because he was activating the whole African continent. They were just saying, fuck off Western, whatever. Right. <clears throat> Colonialism and all of these things. And also, he was because he was both black and white, his dad was white. He, was, he wasn't black. He wasn't white. And through his music and his lyrics, he was starting to get minorities and, and white and black unite and all. He was a major problem. So they tried to take him out. They tried to shoot him. He survived that one. And then dear Carl Colby entered the scene as a documentary maker and gave him these boots. And that was the end of him. But it took time 
it was a slow kill. And I think because of he was he was like on a cure of marijuana, you know, because he was smoking so much. So let's go back to Oswald. Are you okay if I ramble on? No, yeah, please. I'm I'm still following. Okay, so back to back to SV40. So the CIA started developing this this bioweapon against Fidel Castro was the time. So what they did was they set up, they used the New Orleans near the Tulane uh, University, and they had a series of laboratories. They weren't even real laboratories, some of them. They was in the kitchen. You were mentioning David Farid before. It was in his kitchen and other apartments and also, but they also had this incredible particle accelerator hidden in uh, in New Orleans under the surveillance of Dr. Mary Sherman. Mary Sherman. Uh, uh, an, I mean, at this point, Castro was made out to be an absolute monster. So the people involved were trying to liberate the world from a monster. You know, we see it now maybe as a horrible assassination. They saw it as the liberation. And so I believe that Judith was recruited. She doesn't even understand it to this very day. She was recruited into the CIA without understanding it. And the way they did it was through Lee Harvey Oswald. Because Lee Lee at that time, was he was a very young man. He was only 24, but very experienced. He had already been several years in, in Russia doing very brave, very intelligent guy. Uh, that were used. These things are not connected to the JFK assessment. They were just that was the thing that made him at a, as a perfect patsy because then they could use his background and absolutely paint him as black as possible. You know, commie, pig, all of these things, uh, fanatic. So it was a perfect background for that. Had nothing to do with each other. It was just that he was working for the CIA. He was also funded by the FBI. He was with his relatives. He was connected to the New Orleans mob and so on. So he had many, many good things going for him to become a patsy, to be nailed absolutely innocently. So anyway, so Lee was part of this operation in New Orleans, and his job was to take the samples and secretly in thermoses, uh, bring these samples from laboratory to laboratory to laboratory to laboratory. They took them a bus and stuff. So one day when Judith, she was uh, in New Orleans, she was waiting to get to work for Altanoshna. It just got delayed, delayed, delayed. And one day she was really frustrated. She went to the post office to send a letter to her, her new husband that she didn't love, but they were really into sex. And in those days you had to be married. So she was miserable and she, she was going to send him a letter. And she, she dropped the letter and somebody behind her picked it up and it was Lee Oswald. Coincidence? Judith believe it? I think no handler. He was her handler. So she made contact with her like that. They became friends. And I think to start with, it became out as him being her handler, but it turned into something else because both of them were miserable. He was miserable in his marriage with Marina and uh, he had just, uh, his second child had just been born. He was, he, they were both starving for love, you know, and, and they fell in love. So, but Lee introduced him to the rest of this group where you had Jack Ruby was one of them, David Ferry. Clay Shaw, who was a key person in this operation from the Trade Center, World Trade Center, 
who else do we have? Mary, Dr. Mary Sherman, and so on. So they were part of developing this bioweapon. And what Judith was doing was in the kitchen of Dave Ferry, she was injecting it into mice, and then <clears throat> they waited for, for these tumors to grow. They became really gross and big. She killed the mice, she chopped up the tumor, chip, 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 minced it and put it into another injection that was just injected again and again and again into mice. And then they put them through a mixer, it looked like pate. And then they put them in thermoses and Lee Oswald was then going to the next place. They were doing other weird stuff to the next place. And then they put it through this particular accelerator as well. And with radiation, you, I mean, welcome to the world of the CA. Let's go sinister here. Let's just pump it with all kinds of horror. And so that was the whole thing that was going on there. And they were very devoted by by then. Once she really got into this whole, she, she started understanding that this is a bioweapon against Fila Castro. And she thought that was a heroic thing to do. Like nowadays, imagine during the Second World War where people were told that Hitler was this monster. So taking out Hitler would have been an amazing thing to do. Exactly same here. Fidel Castro officially monster of a threat to the world. Let's become heroes, take him out. Now, after which she's really started to rethink that and she feels super guilty of what she was part of. But anyway, so Lee's job was to uh, go around with these things. And while these things were happening, we had the... Uh, Cuban Missile Crisis beforehand, and more and more people were starting to see JFK as a massive threat. So this death machine, Operation 40, what I was talking about before, that, that was consisting of mostly exiled Cubans uh, that was recruited uh, down in Florida, uh, and where Lee was also part of other operation where it came to arming them. So he, even as a young guy, Jimmy Files also were part of this whole thing where there was gun running going to Florida and then in different ways arming these things so that they could take out Castro. But at the same time, also they were going for the bioweapon. So they were involved in it in many different ways. You had uh, Jack Rubenstein or Jack Ruby, as he was called. Also, that was part of this connected to the Chicago mob as well. He came from the Chicago mob uh, there, and then he was placed by the Chicago mob in Dallas as a nightclub owner. So we have all of these different things going on at the same time that had nothing to do with each other. And then it came in the end to this whole big thing called the big event in Dallas on the 22nd of November. So after... When suddenly the situation become uh, became unbearable, the forces in the dark, the ones that were starting to pull, that were pulling the strings, invisible forces, the enemy within, they started saying, "Let's forget about Fidel at the moment. This one is a much bigger bigger threat. We need to stop this madman before he gets elected the next time." So suddenly, Operation Forty, this mobile unit of assassins, got instead of pointed at this cannon, instead of being pointed at Fidel, they pointed it at JFK. So suddenly we have Operation 40, very, very central in the assassination of JFK. And they were doing, there were multiple attempts on the way until Dallas, that Dallas was the third one. And you also had the people from this bioweapon against Fidel Castro. When that sort of got put on hold, 
the same key people were redirected to Dallas to take part of the JFK assassination. Lee was relocated to Fort Worth and then to and then to to Dallas, where he was positioned in that specific uh, school book depository that was actually owned by the very same person who had the Civil Air Patrol. It's, I'm sorry, I'm getting into too much detail, but it was not by coincidence. He was positioned there very, very carefully employed there. And uh, Judith Barry Baker was also, she was still in New Orleans, but they were, the way they, they had sort of like a civ- civilian cover of a job for different companies. They were absolutely not involved in that. They were, their j- real job was completely different. So a double life, which is standard for most CAA assets and so on. So <clears throat> when all of this was going on and Lee and and Judith became lovers, they, I mean, Judith loves Lee to this very day. I mean, she, it's like a Romeo and Juliet story. I've never seen love like that. Never, ever have I seen it. And so she was still, I think, in New Orleans. He got relocated to Dallas. And while there, he started seeing, oh, my God, he was not aware of the JFK assassination to start with. Then he became more and more, oh, my God, they're planning to hit Kennedy. He loved Kennedy. He absolutely loved him. And so he was starting to get really worried because also he started seeing signs. He was a very switched on guy that he was starting to be prepared. They had him, you know, do stuff, say weird things, get on camera being a commie, <clears throat> being a, down in New Orleans, handing out, you know, hands off Cuba. Fair, fair, fair play for Cuba. These type of things. So, in the, in well, our, while all of this was going on, Judith and him was calling each other. They had this special way of calling each other that couldn't be tracked. So he was using different f- phone booths uh, every day. You know, they had a, a different code language. If you was like saying this and this, it was that phone booth. You said that, it was that phone booth and a specific time and so on. So so I think it was the end. Uh, I think it was the 29th of July, 63. Kennedy died on the 22nd of November, where, where Lee said to Judith, I am the patsy. I, I know I am the Patsy. I'm being set up here. And he said, if I step out of it, if I start speaking, they will definitely take me out. They will kill you. They will kill Marina and the kids. I mean, he said, we can, and they were planning on escaping, him and, and, and the Judith were planning on escaping to Mexico. And they had set all kinds of plans in for them getting out just before the assassination. But he said, whatever the case, I'm going to stick, I'm going to stand and, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to save Kennedy, even though it will cost me my life. He was very aware of that he was actually um, this sacrificial lamb being pushed forward, meaning somebody that doesn't chicken out and just takes off thinking of himself, you have to say, whoa, this is being among people that you know are setting you up to get absolutely terminated, spending time with them on a daily basis and still be there 
and play the role to save the president in my world, that is heroic, heroic, heroic. So from the end of July until November, he started trying to warn Kennedy. This is where we see these telexes being sent from the FBI and stuff like that. Please be aware this is going down. This is going down. It, that's also the reason why they were sent in one uh, one team to abort the uh, the operation. The CIA called the operation off on the day of the assassination, but they still went through with it. It One of these things, another layer of this multi-layered uh, shebang. So, yeah, I just want to say Lee Oswald, in my world, was in the true sense of the world hero. He is one. He was one. And then he was pe- painted out as this bad, bad individual mm. who, with this stigma on his family, his daughters, his all of that, him, yeah. Yeah, it's really so, unfortunate. And I have heard an interview with Judith on the Grimerica show and the sense of deep, deep love and devotion that oh, she has for him on. really comes through. And that was really what initially kind of convinced me, I'll say, I immediately bought the book because I wanted to go further. And I'm glad you mentioned me and Lee because that's the that's the book I was thinking of. David Ferry is what I have on the shelf. But either way, mm. it's so fascinating. And yeah, I, although I have never spoken to her, I did get a really strong, intuitive sense that what she was saying was the God-honest truth and, and what actually happened to her. And with a case like this, where so many people seem to have come up and say, oh, I know a thing or two. I mean, recently I've heard news that a gentleman who's identifying himself as a Secret Service agent put a, a place to bullet on JFK's stretcher, something or other. I, I don't know the details or the implications of this story, but it, initially it did strike me as, you know, maybe some sort of magic bullet kind of crapaganda, you know, just to boast, you know, that crazy theory. But going back to what you were saying before about three attempts, obviously the third was successful, right? But what... What do you think was going on in the mind of John F. Kennedy that day? Do you think any part of him was aware that something might be wrong? And was there any indications that he tried to maybe avert the course? Or was he kind of locked into this, you know, deadly fate? I think he was very aware that he was playing hardball. But I, I think some one part of him must have thought that he he was either he was extremely brave, which I think he was in that period of his life, just like Robert, even more brave to uh, the second time once he started seeing them, what they were capable of. I think one part of him have just thought, you know, like they don't dare. They don't dare. I'm, I am the president of the United States, you know, but that is also what, how they got to him. If I've been informed correctly, the way they got the, the bubble top off the bulletproof top of the limo off, because that should normally have been on. They were, they were preparing, they were playing with his ego, the, the, the weeks coming up to Dallas saying, 
president, people in the Secret Service that was in on this whole thing was like, but you really should put it on. You know, you you really should. It's too dangerous. I mean, you. So his ego was saying, nope, I want to be close to the people. I want to be, you know, like, so no, but you should, you know. So he just, they got him to do it. They got him to do it. And this is, you know, if you are a super manipulator, which many of these super psychos are, this is the way you play. You can be right. played and not understanding it. So that how they got the bubble top off. And you know, the whole setup is just like thousands of thousands of thousands of things that right. is just pointing straight to a very, very complex conspiracy that have been building up because of a conspiracy is a very energy demanding operation because not only do you have to do it yourself but then since it's based on lies because you're pointing towards a patsy you have to get redirect the attention away from whoever carried out the operation these lies will be then built on lies and lies and lies and lies and then you got like people are starting getting anxious and 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 paranoid and they start fearing each other and then you have witnesses that start talking and then you have to kill them and then their relatives are talking now so you have to kill them and then people involved are saying this is not okay so you have to kill them and it just big, big it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows so this thing about him with a magic bullet Okay, fair enough. Yes, somebody put it there on the stretcher. Now it's suddenly on another stretcher, but whoever put it there, Jack Ruby was seen there as well. The magic bullet, absolute bullshit on steroids, has not, it was only there to be able to point at one person. And it was Arlen Spector who was later, instead of being kicked out just to put up like a joke, he was then, I think, a US senator, even running for president. I think the quality of presidents in your country. Oh my God, my God, what is going on? But it's a perfect uh, sort of measurements of temperature and when it comes to the level of, of brain activity or none, <laughs> when you see like these individuals, the latest one, the unelected uh, Biden, who in Maui, let's just see FEMA finished the job, as he so beautifully said when he right. went there to visit. Let's get back on track. <laughs> so anyway, so was he aware of it? Yes, he was aware that there was a major threat against him. I mean, you do not do things like that without understanding that. But I think maybe he thought it's at that time, it had been a many, many years since the latest attempt real attempt on a president or killing. I mean, I think it was, was it Abraham Lincoln? You had whatever his name was, what McKinley also, but otherwise than that. And here, suddenly he was in the, he was in the spotlight of the whole world. The whole world was holding him there. Would they dare it? And they did. So, did I answer your question? Absolutely. Can can I just say about this thing with the, with the bullet here? What does it matter if he, 60 years after it happened, 60 years, thank you so much for waiting all of these years while you know, you've known that the whole world needs to find out. And now 60 years after you say that, is it credible? What does it really matter? Yes, the bullet was there. It's absolute bullshit. I mean, it's what that bullet does 
unbelievable. Right. And so that is just not the way. Whoever put that bullet there, it will just say, if you did it, you found it in the car. Well, good for you. Completely pristine. I mean, not a dent in it. And they say, well, it it ended up in the in the the, the car seat. Okay, what kind of weapon is that? The bullet just sort of like looped in and just landed in the car seat, not passing through it, possibly into the body of the guy, person sitting on the other side, which would have been Connolly's wife, not a a hole, not a nothing. And then he just found it. uh, Should it be of importance? No, no, no. I'll just drop it on the stretcher at the hospital. I mean, yeah. And if it's true, then he should be, he should be put, to trial for for obstructing of justice, to say the least, for sixty years. Right. So, no. well, and it did feel when I heard it mentioned. I forget where I first heard that recent news. It's recently because now sixty years is coming up, so we need to divert the attention. Exactly. Divert it with crap, with crap, with exactly. crap, so that when real people step forward, we can say, "Well, it's just one of a hundred stepping forward." You see, yeah. it's an illusion. You have to divert the attention. Look over here. Look over here. Look over here, and dilute the truth. Well, and another factor that I wonder what your thoughts are on, and I wonder how you think this plays into the situation. There's been talk about JFK's health issues and, you know, maybe that added to his level of fearlessness, maybe knowing that he had something that would eventually take his life. So lean into any dangers because, hey, I've only got so much time to live. I never heard that he had a life-threatening disease. He had, he was not a healthy man. He had this uh, whole metal cage on him right. and he was on a medicine that made him very sex so he was humping a lot <laughs> and he was in a position where a lot of beautiful women were offering themselves to him where he was involved with people that was also working for the mob you know like a go-between well, on that some on that note i hate to cut you off but you know i'm i live in connecticut and i actually delivered when i was a delivery guy for a german bakery to the prep school that jfk attended when he was a kid it's called rosemary choate in uh, wallingford connecticut and there are rumors in you know as local areas have rumors about things like this that JFK used to come up to Cheshire, Connecticut, and he there had a liaison with Marilyn Monroe in some sort of, you know, protected off-site kind of trailer or something. And it's only like a, what, a 40-minute drive from New York City so they could sort of get in and out. And, you know, I definitely, I wonder how much of that was put out there after the fact to make JFK look worse, maybe to downplay some of the heroic efforts that he, you know, was undergoing before his assassination. I don't know about Connecticut. They, they had an affair for sure, a big one, but the real love affair was between Bobby Kennedy and Marilyn, not Robert. And she even got pregnant with Bobby. And this is also one of the things that really, because Bobby was trying to sh- shut her shut her down, because she got very, very upset. She was not a stable person. You know, she was used as a sex toy by the mob and by the so-called good guys. And, you know, so she was given to presidents here and there and, and everywhere as a trophy. And so she was a piece of meat, the sex symbol of the world. 
piece of meat in this whole thing. And her, I would almost say her pimp or her handler was Frank Sinatra, who was sort of the one directing her. But the one that really got to her was Bobby Kennedy. And they, she truly seemed to have been in love with her, with him. Then she got pregnant. And, <clears throat> and when she tried to call both first JFK, he, he shut her down when she was starting to get, you know, she was on pill and booze and, and she was really starting mentally not to be completely healthy if she ever had been. And she had this very, very dangerous diary, a notebook where she was putting down everything, including, I would not be surprised, this one disappeared, by the way, when she committed suicide. All of the details about the people she had been with and dates and names, according to her girlfriends, you know, very, very dangerous if you like that. And she was naive as well, not understanding the the level of shark waters she was in. So when JFK stopped her calls into the to the White House and Bobby turned her back on her also uh, because she was starting to become a real liability, that was where she became a major threat. The J the Marilyn Monroe uh, assassination is super complex as well. Yeah. It's multi-layer. We can do a show on that uh, <laughs> also because even the people that were there are not aware of who actually killed her because Bobby Kennedy to the day that he died believed that he was uh, the one that gave the order to that killed her. She asked, she was very upset. He went there the afternoon of the day he died trying to calm her down. And then he had a doctor with him saying, please give her, you know, a tranquilizer, just calm her down. And then they left her. They thought everything was okay. They left her. But at that time, <clears throat> her house was bugged by people working both for the mob and the FBI. It, this is welcome into this world of multilayered. And the mob had sent in killers uh, on that morning trying to uh, blame this whole thing on Bobby Kennedy to blame him. So when they left, they thought perfect opportunity to go and kill her and then go public with it because Kennedy was in the house. He was not supposed to be there at all. People had seen him, people had that. So that could be the destruction of Kennedy, meaning also the witch hunt on the mob could stop because this was like 62 before JFK had been taken out. There are even some, I haven't been able to get it confirmed yet, but that maybe JFK went to Giancana and said, listen, she's completely out of control. Can you handle this for me? And asked the mob to take her out. But I don't think it, it's not completely logical because he could have just used the CIA. But yet again, he was trying to destroy the CIA as well. So it's like, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, the ones that took him out, took her out through, they put things up her, barbiturates up her butt. And also, I think they were injected in the area of her pubic hairs. She got an injection of air also in that whole thing. So you couldn't see the needle point. And they, these were one of the shooters uh, from from later in Dealey Plaza, Chucky Nicoletti, and two other mobsters that I'm, and the guy that, drove them to the airport in Chicago the day of the assassination was Jimmy Files, the future shooter behind the picket fence, who is the driver for Chucky Nicoletti. It's the same team that are just moving around and on very high level cases, very, very high level. Yeah. Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, same group, boom, 
Yeah. And I would like to have you back on to discuss RFK. I think that definitely deserves its own show and obviously connected to everything we're discussing now. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Ole, this has been so great. I know we've gone over two hours here. I don't want to keep you for all that much longer. I know you're in a a totally different time zone. I'm not sure if you're starting your day or ending your day, but... Yeah, starting. Yeah, okay. I had a feeling. So, yeah, while we're sort of winding down, you mentioned, you know, the conspiratorial perspective you have about all this. And I'd, I'd like to end on a, a light note, and your website is Light on Conspiracy. So tell us a little bit about that perspective and, and you know, how you, you remain positive while looking at all of these very troubling, you know, events and circumstances that go on in the reality that we're in. Well, that's the question, isn't it? What reality are we in? I think that is where, because what are we living in? In my world, I'm not really sure. Is it a matrix? Is it an illusion virtual reality? Is it real? Is it not? Is things that I'm being pumped, being given through black screens in front of me, most of them uh, marked smart when the actual spelling should be evil. Is it true? Is it not true? What is, do you know, why is this going on? That is why I've been my whole life been confused because I don't understand evil. I understand kindness, goodness. I adore the truth. I'm learning about love. That is where I'm trying to go. And I see a lot of so-called dark stuff hideous crimes hideous and on a street level absolutely horrendous you know and super psychos and this whole bunch so i've been down when i was younger I, I looked at my bookshelf one day like in your background and i was like either it was about spirituality and new age and all of this uh, de- all of these type of things or mass murders serial killers uh, so psychopaths i was like what's going on in my mind? Am I some kind of, like, this is a little bit strange. No, it's to understand duality, light, dark. And in this, whatever we are in, you need duality, apparently. You need left to understand right. You need up to understand down. You need evil to understand goodness or kindness and love. You need hate to understand another thing. You need fear to understand that there are other ways. So, I see it as like there's different layers. And like my mother said, she was very well read. And before she died, I said, so, so how did it go sort of in this uh, life thing? And she said, still confused, but on a higher level. So I'm still confused, but on a higher level. I don't understand it, but I'm I'm getting a better grip of it. And, and I've had to explore darkness to see it. It's also through darkness that we evolve. Do you know, it's like we would be bored to tears if there was just like butterflies and angels flying around. I think so, because people say, I want, I just want to live in peace and happiness. Really? Really? What do you watch? Is it sort of like dramas? Is it uh, thrillers? Is it poetic French uh, films that not, where nothing happens, but you just got like birdsong in the background? Or are you into Batman movies and serial killers? Most people would say, well, I really like Batman. And so, okay, so imagine Batman being really happy. You know, he's this transgender type of guy just coming from a party in a weird outfit, driving around in a bizarre customized car, having nothing to do. 
all day long. We just follow him drive up and down while he's sort of like eating bagels and, and feeding, feeding doves. Great. No, people would be bored to tears. And so the Joker, suddenly it's interesting. Suddenly it's the more hideous and evil he is. <laughs> it's interesting. And then he does horrible stuff. And then Batman can say, I'm not only uh, a misfit or whatever, I will actually do the right thing. And he will fight for justice. So what's going on here? On a street level, horrendous stuff. I call it boot camp. On a higher level, we had to thank absolute assholes and super psychos as Fauci, Hellgates, Hitlery, these type of individuals that are helping us saying, on this level, I will take on all of this bad karma for you. I will do all of this horrendous, horrible, horrible to wake you up to say, listen, please, there's something bizarre going on. You have to start evolving on a spiritual level. Get going. You're here. You're being too lazy. You're getting too fat. You're getting too off track. I will do some horrendous stuff over there that would shake you up so that you can start saying, wait a second, what is my truth? What are my things? What am I willing to stand up for? What am I willing to officially die for? There's an expire date on this meat suit, by the way. So why not say, wow, what a thrill this is. This is pretty scary and amazing and incredible and horrible all at the same time. What can I learn from it? Well, I can start seeing that when I'm fearful, I'm not doing what I should do. I, I know that I'm not being myself full out. So maybe fear is the one I should I should start looking at so I can be myself completely free. And here we have this so-called elite group. I think the technical term, uh, definition is absolute scum that are trying to take over the world. It's Dr. Evil with an evil laugh and the white cat. You know... Well, anal swab, swab, cloud swab, whatever. I mean, it's the only thing that is missing is the, it's the white cat. How obvious can they make it to us to put a flamethrower up about saying, wake up? What did they, what did they mean by wake up? We say we are awake. Really? It's like believe in the American dream. You can only dream if you're asleep. So snap out of that. And what is we have to snap out? the spell of fear. It is only through fear that we can be controlled. Without fear, you can move completely free. And that is also the ultimate happiness, I think. So why not see it as, okay, what do I want? I want to be free. How? How? I want to be happy. That's what everybody says. Okay, not a problem. But you have to face, you have to go the hero's journey. You have to face some real dragons here because otherwise you would be bored to tears. You are one of the strongest of the strong souls that are come down, have fought our way down here to be part of this. This time is unheard of. It is so magnificently, horribly challenging amazing we are at a shift where we can transcend this whole thing i don't think it's ever happened before we hear the native indian says the strongest of the strong souls have fought their way down and now we're saying oh i think it's a little bit scary can i please refund my ticket no you cannot you cannot you're here you're in the situation so how to deal with it and deal with it we have to there's no we, you cannot sit on the side 
anymore. You used to be able to look upon people like me down in the gladiator arena and say, well, you should have done that and you should have been like that. And you should, well, fuck that. You are in it now. Either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. It's up to you. Some have to be scumbags. Other of us choose another different path. The dark ones see the light ones as the enemy. So I can't blame them. It's nothing personal. I am evil in their eyes. They are evil in my eyes, whatever that means. But when somebody gets hurt in my world, not okay. If you kick a baby, if you kick a dog, if you hit somebody, if you, I'm going to stop you. And the, the higher up you go, the more I'm going to do everything I can to expose your ass. Completely nonviolent, completely nonviolent, but by the truth. The truth shall set us free. And so pull the curtain because any criminal activity can only continue in the dark. It's in the shadows where these things happen, not out in the open. So pull the curtain of the Wizard of Oz. See, oh my God, I've been taking it for a ride. I was scared here for a while. Look at these ones. I mean, it's just a bunch of old buggers. No spine, no creativity, no moral values, no dignity, no nothing. They're absolute just scum, technical term. What are we doing? And we're being controlled by them. They're in the thousands. We're in the billions. I mean, is this a Monty Python joke? It's like, shouldn't this be like a massive joke? We should just be standing laughing next time they say, we're going to go to war because Bin Laden has a re peace alive again. Now we're going to kill him at yet another time. Or this is happening. That is happening. When you Every time you look at it, it's like, no, it's not. Apparently, I'm being scared by this, but well, it's turned out to be not true. And by the way, your leaders and the ones that are being told that are your heroes, well, you can absolutely not trust them. How many times do you trust them? How many times do you go and, well, this time I'm going to vote and it's going to be different. How many hundreds of elections does it take for you to see nothing happens? Nothing happens. They just have selected individuals to you. Which one do you want? This one, this one, this one. They all belong to me. Take the power back. Take the power back. Don't even give. I've listened to Trump, who's the hero from, I don't know who he is. He seems like some kind of joker in the game to me. I've listened maybe in total 4.3 minutes to what he says. Biden, maybe a few seconds on the, uh, that's about it. I think if there was ever a real elected president, and I mean, he wasn't even elected in a just way, it would be Kennedy. His brother, Robert, was about to run for president and bring Martin Luther King as vice president. These people I might have been able to trust. Terminated. All of the rest ones, why are we giving our power away to them? Well, why do you... Yeah. On that note, we, we have RFK <laughs> Jr., you know, running for office. What are your thoughts on him? I mean, obviously, you know, RFK wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to happen. And I, I agree, that would have been incredible. But do you think RFK Jr. has any chance of, you know, living up to that? I think it's beautiful. Then I see other things he's saying. If it's him saying it nowadays, things can be manipulated so now where I just feel, oh my God, here we go again. The thing is, please understand, don't wait for heroes out there. They're not going to come and, and save you. White hat, black hat, red hat, blue hat, black, 
Black life matters, white life matters, all of these things. Don't put your effort, don't put your faith out there. The power is in you. The power is in you. You have to lift the darkness from your mind. And the cloud inside of you is based on fear. So lift the fear, become a free individual. How do you lift the fear? Oh, but fear is so real. No, it's not. It's an illusion. Yeah, but I'm really scared. It's a, it's an emotion. Where does it come from? Well, maybe outside propaganda, but your fear is in your mind. My fear is here. It's not out there. It's not blue. It's not square. It's not like ways a certain. No, it's only in my mind. And it's always, this is the good news. If it's in there, maybe I could do something about it. Maybe I can start dealing with it. Raj yoga is one way, I tell you, meditation, all of there's so many different ways of dealing with it. So the good news with fear is you're always afraid of something that has not yet happened, has not yet happened. It's in the future. Oh, he's going to shoot me. It's in the future. He's got a gun to my head. He's, I'm going to die in the future. Maybe it's licorice. Maybe it's made of licorice. Maybe it's not loaded. Maybe it's a toy gun. Maybe it's just a joke. It's a prank. You're not yet dead. Once you the bullet has entered into your head, okay, I, I made a mistake. I should have been afraid. And no, that's the time to fear. Until then, it's an illusion. It's always connected to something that has not yet happened, meaning it's pure speculation. And m so many of us let this fear control us. Well, what if? Well, what if you don't do something? I tell you, if you don't do something in this illusion we're living in, we're going straight down the shithole, literally. Agenda 21, the fourth industrial revolution, you will own nothing, they will be happy. You smart cities, smart grids, we're screwed on a, on a scale unbelievably dark. And if we don't, the future can be unbelievably beautiful. We transcend this whole thing. The choice is ours. The choice is yours. Who do you want to be? Do you want to die in your diapers? 93 years old. I did nothing with my life. I was an absolute coward. I was ducking and diving. I was working out of guilt. I was not having any close relationships because I was too afraid. Is that the way you want to lie there in your own crap in a diaper saying, but at least I made it to 93 or 104? Well, it's a choice. Or, like me, for instance, I know this meat suit has an expired date. That's what I'm being told. I don't know about the soul, but the meat suit, apparently. So in that case, that means this one will die one day. So why not say, okay, if that is the case, I might risk my life, whatever that means. This meat suit, I might risk it. But I might do it in a way that will just feel like, Yay, baby, what a ride. I stood up for everything I believed in. I failed sometimes. I succeeded on the on the bigger picture. I did really well. And I'm super, super excited. Yes, I'm dying. Woohoo! What a ride. Reincarnation. Maybe I'm back again. If not, that was it. But my God, I did my best. And so you come out like that. That is what I prefer. And then you make real change because then you're not controlled by fear. This is one person. I reached multiple millions of people out there 
I live in a small little soap bubble. I walk bare feet. I have a, a scooter outside. That's my complete fortune, including this guitar. Have I got an army? Have I got a title? Have I got zero? I'm a one-man band. I've reached millions. What can you do? And on your path, my God, with your network, with your friends, with your creativity, look at your skill sets. What did God give you if you believe in a God? I'm really good at making cookies. Well, heroes in that area really enjoys cookies. Give them cookies. It, that Do your part of the whole thing. We're up against forces with zero creativity. We've been given the exact opposite. So let's make the best of it. And now I need to go. Website, lightonconspiracies.com. That was a segue. I've got the world's biggest uh, research vault, as far as I know. Uh, everything is being deleted. I'm one of, I would say, one of the worst, most censored people on the internet, I believe. 95% of what I've done is gone, except on lightonconspiracies.com. I've done been interviewed more than 1,100 times. That's a hell of a lot of hours and work, not paid for nothing. I put my whole life into this. So please, I've got a, a newsletter. My last name has be, become a verb, hashtag Damagod, hashtag Damagod, is to find the hidden clues in the forensic evidence and about upcoming attacks, expose them, stop them. And up to date, I'm, I've exposed, connected, or stopped uh, 68 of these alleged mass shootings or alleged terror attacks expose them up to two months before they happen on international radio. You go figure that one. And why are, am I not being called in by FBI and these sources saying, well, he must have been in the center of all of this. He must be involved or maybe figure out something that we don't understand. So maybe we should call him in as a teacher. Am I being called? No. Why? Because they're the ones doing it to us. The ones you think you can trust are the ones doing it and now i need to go mark it's been an absolute pleasure and i would love to come back thank you so much yes Oli, this has been fantastic and everybody tuning in please go check the link in the description lightonconspiracies.com it's right there click on it check out Oli, support him and his work and until next time immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now All right, ladies and gentlemen, and that was just the free portion of our conversation with Ole Damagar. Such a great uh, pleasure to have him on the show. Just a repository of information and so kind to offer to join us back here again on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. But like I said, uh, this was only a portion of our conversation. If you want to hear Ole go deep into some questions, I've asked him about occultism and how that plays into the JFK assassination, how the Freemasons and other groups were possibly involved, and how all these occult ritual angles are very important to understanding what exactly went down on November 22nd in Dealey Plaza in 1963. Of course, 60, almost 60 years ago. This is being recorded on September 27th, 2023. Uh, like I said, folks, if you want to hear the entire interview, please do go and check the link in the description. Click there to sign up on Patreon for as low as $5. We also have a sub stack. 
that's available. And if you sign up for the $8 tier on Patreon, I will also sign you up for the Substack. So just remind me, sometimes I forget. But a lot of great content there. Not just the full episode with Ole, but other full episodes and a bonus episode that I recently put out with Paul Stobbs. It's not quite a bonus episode. I will eventually release it. Uh, but for now, it's just going to be available for supporters only. So if you want to hear us go deeper into the Nephilim and the clowns and all that, Paul returned to the My Family Fix Some Crazy podcast and he did not disappoint. So go and sign up for that. Also, in the extended version of this episode, I'm going to be playing a clip from a documentary where you can hear Judith Barry Baker describe the uh, final moments of her relationship with Lee Harvey Oswald before everything unfolded. She talks about their last phone calls together, and it's very interesting. Uh, Only mentioned that in this conversation, and I was, as I said, initially really struck by her story. I went and picked up one of her books, and yeah, it's very interesting stuff. I'm really grateful that Ole brought all of that into the equation today. Especially, you know, no slight or shade to Jay and Ryder from a previous episode. But I can understand where maybe people thought that theory was a little too far out there. And this episode maybe could help us all, uh, you know, get back on our feet. But I do find what Jay and Ryder, uh, their theory, what they posed, I found it very interesting. Don't get me wrong. And that's the point of this show is to be open-minded to all perspectives, whether we disagree or not. You know, that's not going to be my place to judge or debate with my guests if I you know, had an issue with them, well, I probably wouldn't invite them on the podcast in the first place. So that's just how I roll. I'm not going to be having fights with people uh, on the podcast. I <laughs> I already do that enough in my, my daily life. So anyways, um, we've got tons of great news. Tara and I have some awesome news. Uh, found a new apartment. We've been exploring some ancient structures here in New England, so there'll be some more updates on that very soon. Do sign up on the Substack if you're particularly interested in that. That's where most of the photos and videos of that kind of research, I put that there. And uh, you may have noticed on Instagram, I posted something about the legends of living, living mammoths in Canada. I want to do a bonus episode on that very soon. Juan and I have a bonus show that him and I do together. Uh, It's going to be a live stream every week. So maybe I'll talk about that with Juan next time him and I get together this coming Monday. Well, actually, it'll be this past Monday when this episode comes out. So if you missed it, go and sign up on the Patreon or the Substack to check that out. And uh, I'm sure I've plugged everything enough. <laughs> um, you know, I'm just trying to turn this podcast into a serious day job and uh, afford to spend more time researching and interviewing and things like that. So I hope 
folks aren't turned off by all of the plugging and all that, but uh, it's just necessary. You know, you put out a free show for this long, and um, you know, I hope that people find value in it and return that value uh, in whatever form they see fit. You know, whether that's leaving a nice rating and review, whether that's sending a one-time donation or subscribing and signing up to support the show long-term, which is what I hope most people do. But of course, there are other options. If you like the free side of the show, I get it. I listen to tons of stuff for free. I also support over 10 podcasts myself, so I'm not over here, you know, uh, like some kind of hypocrite or you know, begging with one hand and uh, <laughs> shoving food down my face with the other, you know, I'm trying to make ends meet. So please do consider supporting the show for as low as $5 a month. You get more if you sign up for $8 a month and so on and so forth. And that's it for today's free episode. Do join us in the extended edition of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. We'll see you there. Until next time, folks, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Hungry for infinite, and every time I'm peeking, I can see it for an instant. 
I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd. Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl. Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles. Consumerism, living in their vacant smiles. Uh, now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky. High and even gotta try, gaining wisdom on the fly. I'm touching base with things I can't explain. Gods without names on a different plane. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, 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 wait.